As we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians over the last several weeks and for the few weeks following, we will be working our way through Ephesians 6, 10 through uh, 19, 20. Uh, and so for the sake of context this morning, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. This morning, spending the majority of our time in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. We thank you for uh, terms. We thank you that you have created language, Lord, that you have not left us uh, to exist as mere animals that function by instinct, that you have given us words, uh, that you have given us your word, that you have helped us to understand things and to hear things and to think about things and dwell on things. I thank you, Father, that you allow us to think about the past and the present and the future. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we focus together on the salvation you have given, uh, that you would help us to have hearts that rejoice in the past completion of our salvation, the present circumstance of our salvation, and the future hope of our salvation. I pray that you would do this not for our sake, uh, but for your sake, for the sake of your name and our valley, that you would give us hearts that long to love you. As Daniel prayed, that you would help us to be those who not only seek to live holy in our own lives, but to declare the holy message of the gospel to our valley, that you might be proclaimed and worshiped as you deserve to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, as we continue to work our way through this section, Ephesians 6, 10 and on, uh, it is talking about spiritual warfare. It's talking about what is going on all the time, whether you notice it or not, is spiritual warfare. We've talked about in the previous weeks, as a human, you exist as both a body and a soul. Uh, you exist as both a physical person and a spiritual person. And the conflict of your life is not primarily uh, the physical body in which you have. The conflict of your life that is eternal is the spiritual life. It is who you are internally. It is who you are uh, that is what makes you do what you do, live how you live, and be who you are, and for who you will forever be in Christ. And so spiritual battle is not some kind of strange like, oh, that's happening in some part of the world, but it's not happening here. The spiritual battle is always true. It is always going on. Your soul is always a matter of importance in your life. 
And in this last section of Ephesians, after we've had the gospel proclaimed in Ephesians 1 through 3, as we've had clear instruction in what it looks like to be a Christian, what our lives should be in repentance and faith in 4 through 6, we now come to this closing section where Paul is again telling us, finally, as knowing all of that, be aware this is a battle. Know the battle is before you. He says, knowing what the battle is, the battle is a spiritual battle, and it is a battle not wrestling against flesh and blood. It is not a physical war we are trying to win, but it is a battle that is beyond our strength. It is a spiritual battle, and it is not a generic spiritual battle. Satan and demons in the world, uh, Satan is the one who deceived Eve, who brought rebellion to mankind. Adam in sin then brings all man into sin. And so the world exists in what Paul describes here as the evil day. And we're told here not to rest in our own strength. We're not to become ghostbusters and figure out what we can and try to get goggles that allow us to see spiritual things or try to find people who passed over or died or did all these things. The spiritual battle is going on always in our lives. And we are not to rest on our own strength, our own understanding, our own deciding of what is out there that we do not see but we are to rest where? It's right there at the beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We meet this battle resting in him. And so for the last several weeks, we have looked at from verse 13 uh, that we are to take up the whole armor of God that we might stand in the evil day and that we are to have done all to put on the strength of God. And so in verse 14, we saw then that we must stand having fastened on the belt of truth, that we are covered and secure in the truth, that we must put on the breastplate of righteousness, that we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, that we would be confident in the peace of the gospel, that the shoes of our feet would be that we can go in any situation with confidence because peace has been made with God. And then lastly, last week, we looked at holding the shield of faith, that your life is guarded by belief and trust and dependence in him, completely in faith by the gift he has given. And this week we'll look, last, uh, not lastly, but this week, completely delivered in salvation. In verse 17, Paul states it this way. He says, take up the helmet of salvation. Salvation is spoken out throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old. A salvation, I would say, is a key part of the faith. If you believe in Christ, or if you would say you're a Christian, and someone says, what does that mean that you're a Christian? One way you might describe it is to be saved, right? It'd be a common question to ask people, like, are you saved? And what is, if you ask the world that, like, hey, are you saved? And they're like, from what? What are you talking about? Right? But as a Christian, it's just a term we use. We, we just kind of, that's just a marker that Christians have used to try to clarify what we mean and, and not just saying, are you a Christian? Do you just hold to these, of, these certain beliefs? But Christians come up with terms like, I'm a born again Christian. Or are you saved? Um, I've had people ask me questions like, do you believe the whole gospel? I'm like, can you articulate for me what you think the whole gospel is? Like, so I can tell you whether or not I believe that. But what are we trying to do? We're trying to say, are you really living in the reality of this? 
Are you just a Christian by name or does this motivate everything for you? And one way that it would motivate everything for you is salvation, that you would be saved. So I want you to just take a minute and, and your notes and your handout or on your phone and think about it. If someone asked you, what is salvation? How do you describe that? What does that mean? If you're a Christian, uh, this should be a question that, that people would ask, right? And it's a question that you want to answer. What does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? What does salvation mean? We might come with verses that are great and, and hopefully familiar to us, like Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We might turn to Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those are good verses. You might put them up on your wall. You, you, some of you might tattoo them on your body. You might force your children to memorize them. You might uh, lovingly get your children. You don't have to force them. Maybe, maybe they want to. Uh, you might memorize them. These are good verses, right? But a single verse doesn't have the depth of what salvation is. Notice if you just know Acts 4.12, that there is salvation in no one else for no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The question still remains, what are we saved from? And you might think, who then? Who is it that's saved? Romans 1.16 is very helpful. That Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. We do not need to be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the power of salvation. People can be saved because of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, encompassing all people. The salvation is available for everyone. But what is that salvation? Again, I want you to just take note. In your, in your notes, in your handout, I just want you to write down, how would I articulate salvation? What does it mean? Our understanding of salvation is an essential part of the Christian faith. If someone was to ask you, you've got to think about what would I say? How would you describe what it means to be saved? Recognize Paul is saying here, if we are to withstand the evil day, we need to take up the helmet or that which protects your head of salvation. Peter says it other ways. We've looked at it in previous weeks. He says, gird up the loins of your mind and rest your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you. Last year, Faith Bible, remember as we looked through Colossians and Paul prays for the Colossians, what does he pray? He prays that they would have wisdom and knowledge to apply what they know about the truth of the gospel. We often hear the Christian faith is a Christian is a, is a faith of the heart and the heart only. God looks at the heart. But in biblical terms, the heart does not exclude the mind. The heart is the whole person. And Christian, you cannot be someone who loves God just with your affections and not with your mind, not with your thoughts. Throughout the Bible, we are warned, you must give your mind. You must love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And so here he says, you must guard your mind, your head, your brain, your dome with the helmet of salvation. Right? Helmets are important. I know lots of people that have had arm injuries or leg injuries, and, and that's a bummer. 
but they're nothing compared to a head injury. If you know people who have had head injuries, that is an injury that will change the rest of your life. It's something that needs to be protected. A helmet is important. And the main point here is not Christians be people that walk around in helmets, right? I'm not saying after church today, you should all get helmets. You should be those parents that are like, why does he have the helmet on? He's just walking through the grass. Grass is dangerous. He needs a helmet. I'm not, I'm not advocating that we become the helmeted. Uh, and that's not what's going on here. Paul is using the armor of God to say, this is what protects a soldier. Christian, you need to know what protects you because you are in a war. He's not telling Christians, go buy a breastplate and go buy a sword, buy a helmet and buy a belt. He's telling Christians, you need to understand what guards and protects you by the grace of God. As a soldier is given equipment by the government or the leader, a Christian has been given equipment, not of their own strength, not of their own power, not of their own doing, but by the grace of God that you would walk into it. And one of those are salvation. I would say salvation is this, if I had to give a quick summary definition, and I know you've had a few minutes to prepare and I've had many, many weeks, so. But if I had to give a complete definition, this is, this is what I would say. Salvation is to be delivered from sin. Sin which deserves the wrath of God. And also given the righteousness of Christ, which transforms us from the inside out, making us those no longer living for sin, but living for God. And at some point, someday, it will result in everlasting life. After death, we will be completely freed from sin, living to display the glory of God. We need to have a, a depth of understanding when it comes to salvation. We cannot be people who walk around going, what does it mean to be saved? It means that you don't smoke and you don't chew and you don't go with girls that do, right? It's not, you, it's not that you walk around your house and you're going, we don't do that. Christians don't do that. Why? Because we're saved. That can make it very confusing. Do you not do that because you're saved or are you saved because you don't do that? It creates confusion often. We need a depth of understanding and salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What is it? Satan as the deceiver would love for you to have a shallow and insecure of the greatest, most important thing of your life that you were saved. He would love for your understanding to be shallow because he, like many used car salesmen, is a slimy salesman. And he is confident on your insecurity and your lack of understanding, right? He wants you to live through life having an uninformed, a vague idea about everything and anything. Because when you're uninformed and you're vague, you're compelled by what? Your desires, your passions, your emotions. Let me give you an example as a used car salesman would use it, right? You, you walk on and you are making a massive financial decision. You are taking something on in your life that you're going to pay for, you know, for the next two to four to seven to, I think now you can go all the way to 10 years. And what does the car salesman ask? What do you want to pay? What kind of payment are you looking for? That's the wrong question. How much are you going to pay for the car? He's trying to burden you and saddle you with years of debt because of your lack of understanding. He's just saying, how much could you afford for a month? Oh, we can get you there. You just got to sign up for a 38-year car loan. You can drive whatever you want, right? 
He doesn't want to talk about the cost of the car. He wants to spread that out in little pieces that you won't feel, though it's really being taken from you. Because you just, this is all you got to do every month for the rest of your life. Car salesmen are often shady, as are many other salesmen. That's why I'm thankful for Christian salesmen who function based upon, I am selling you a product worthwhile for a cost that is fair for both you and for me. That's good and faithful sales. But many salesmen, uh, they go after people who don't understand what they're buying. They don't understand what they're purchasing. They're uninformed, they have a shallow understanding, and therefore they can manipulate that person by emotion. Doesn't that look beautiful? Look at this. Let me, you guys have all seen the shady sales tactics where they take something that's like already trash and they go, this is what you have on your house already. Look, it's just falling apart. <laughs> and this is what we built. Isn't this great? Look at our country. Our company started at the foundation of England. We've been around so long. You're so secure with us. But slow down. You don't know this dude, right? You know how that works in the world. Satan is the deceiver. He is the adversary. Those men are doing what they know in sin, but they did not invent that. Satan did in the garden. When he said, Eve, doesn't that fruit look amazing? Why is God keeping everything from you? And Eve's answer should have been, he's not. He's given us everything in the garden. This is one tree that's not intended for eating. But Satan, in her lack of understanding and the desires of her eyes as she saw that it was there and it was good to eat, why not eat it? She was swindled by a sleazy car salesman. Worse than that. And Adam gave right in with her. Christian, you, though you have been freed in Christ, cannot afford to have a shallow understanding of your salvation. You cannot afford it to be vague and ambiguous. Your understanding of salvation must be full and complete. And by God's grace, you are not saved because of your understanding of salvation. Right? You're not saved because of your understanding of salvation. It doesn't say here, put on the armor of God so that you can be saved. In Ephesians 1 through 3, it says, He has planned this. He has purposed this. He has saved you. You rest your hope fully in Him. And here is the armor to protect you as you are already saved. You're His. If your hope is in Christ, the armor of God is not a call to you, do these things so that you can be His. It is, you are His, and this is what He has given you. So let's look together at what does it mean then to take up the helmet of salvation? What does it mean to cover our minds with the whole truth of salvation? Historically, it would be described in this way. As men are laboring to communicate and to understand the Bible, these are the three biblical terms that would be used to describe our salvation. You could write them down. They're also at the first word of all the headings of your handout this morning. Number one is what you might think of most quickly. When I asked one of my children, what does it mean to be saved? They said, well, it means you're not going to go to hell, right? That's a good answer. Right? That is part of what it means to be saved. It is justification. It is salvation from the penalty of sin. Justification is salvation from the penalty of sin. We are not just saved in justification. We'll also look at this morning sanctification. We have salvation from the power of sin. 
We experience salvation in sanctification. We are saved from the power of sin. And lastly, we will one day experience salvation in glorification. We will be freed or saved from the presence of sin. So my goal this morning is we are instructed here to take up the whole armor of God, to do everything we can to stand firm, is not to give you a theological lecture to bore you. It's not to teach you some new terms so you can impress your other Christian friends and say things like, well, I'm just pursuing sanctification. Oh, they don't talk about that at your church, do they? I go to faith model ministry. That's not the goal, right? We're not trying to be theological jerks. What we are trying to do is what God commanded here, to do everything we can to stand firm. We want to understand all that he has said about salvation, that we might walk worthy in the evil day, that we would withstand all of the scheming lies of Satan, the deceiver in the world. Because they are all around you. So first, let's look at salvation, justification, salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin. This is probably what we most commonly think of. We say, what does it mean to be saved? We're not going to hell, right? It means we're not going to hell. That's an important question. That's one we talk about often. You're going to die, and when you die, judgment will come. And when judgment comes, what will come of you? Where will you go? Many Christians have labored throughout history to articulate this and discuss this and and to give this to believers. We are blessed to live in a time that next week when it says, take up the sword of truth, we can literally do it, right? We, We carrying them around. We talk about like, I got my sword with me. I keep it with me. I got my sword all the time. Got my sword on my cell phone. I got my sword everywhere. Because we have the word of God in all kinds of printed copies, digital copies, translations, Greek tools. We can get to the word all the time. But Christians have not always been blessed in this way. There are many times throughout history where Christians labored to articulate an understanding of justification so that they could memorize it and understand the truth of Scripture and hold fast to it. And I think in some ways it's an art that we have lost. And we have so many resources it has made us lazy and not fervent. But one of those is what you might be familiar with, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And its intention is to articulate the truths of the gospel like any other confession. It is essentially an ancient doctrinal statement, much like ours. It's not declaring this is the truth and this is inarguable and you cannot deny this. It's declaring what the word of God says in a comprehensive yet more compact way for believers. That's what a doctrinal statement is. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is one of those. They give a very helpful answer. It's there in your handout, and it's going to use great words that you're going to love because, you know, you have always used this such a language. A, justification. How does the Westminster Confession define justification? As many Christians labor together to make this statement, it says justification is an act of God's free grace onto sinners in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their person's righteousness in his sight. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Now, some of you English teachers or homeschool moms are like, that's a run-on sentence. I don't, maybe if you're a classical education mom, you're like, that's a good one. 
That's lots of commas, very descriptive. You go, you little Apostle Paul. Theological sentences are weighty and run-ons. They make English teachers mad because God doesn't submit to your English. It's not what he does. But he's descriptive. And in the same way, the Westminster Confession is seeking to be descriptive, that this is free grace to sinners, and it pardons their sins, and it brings them in righteousness. They are accounted and accepted as his. And that there's nothing in them that has accomplished this, nothing they did to do this. It's not on their part, but only that they would become perfect and fully satisfying God in Christ. And to do so, God has imputed all of that all their righteousness to them by nothing of their own, but by faith, which he has given them and faith alone. And you might think we don't follow the Westminster Confession, Jake, and I agree with you, we don't, uh, but I'm more than happy to read it and would encourage you to read it because it proclaims truth. So let me point you to a couple of places where I think the, the men who wrote the Westminster Confession were building from, and you're probably familiar with them. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they have been given grace as a gift. They are justified in him. And how are they? By the blood of Christ, by Christ's atonement, his redemption for them, who God put forward as propitiation, or as Daniel explained this morning, the sacrifice that carries the wrath of God on it for you. That you're, you're, you are not going to receive hell and the wrath of God, but it has been taken in Christ as the propitiation for sin by his blood. And how do you receive this? Is it that you walk an aisle? Is it that you pray a prayer? Is it that you're baptized? Is it that you consistently take communion? Is it that you're a good dad because you've never gone to jail? What is it that makes you righteous in Christ? It's not any of those things. It's faith. That you rest completely dependently on his gifts, what he has accomplished. And because of that, Romans goes on, and you could read all this in between from three all the way to eight, but at eight he declares... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says there is no condemnation. You will not be condemned. There is nothing that will subject you to hell in Christ because Christ has set you free from what? From the law of sin and death. From the law that said to show man, it is a mirror. The law is there to say to mankind, you cannot satisfy God. You have lived in sin. You have dwelled in sin. Paul says that covetousness was not written about for him to go, oh good, I never covet. But when he read of covetousness, what happens? He noticed all kinds of covetousness in his own heart. 
Christian, the word of God is not written for you to understand the sin of those people out there, but it is written as a mirror that you might understand your own sin, and therefore you can help them. You can proclaim to them the truth of sin, the depths of sin, and the rejoicing grace of Christ, the glory of Christ that he would save us from ourselves, from our own sin, from the wrath that we deserved. He says, you are no longer under the law of sin and death. The commands are no longer there for you to see what sin is and know you will die as a result. But you are under the law of the spirit. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You, you might read the word of God and find yourself condemned in sin. And now you must remember, because you are justified in Christ, it is just as if you never sinned. You are his completely. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You are free from the wrath of God. Justification is an important truth, but it's often where we stop. We think, I'm free from the wrath of God. I'm good. I can't go to hell. There is no condemnation in Christ. But we forget what follows. It says, you no longer walk according to the flesh. You walk now by the Spirit. Salvation is not just justification. It's not just something that was one done in the past by Jesus. As we'll see in Hebrews, it says, He once and for all gave up His life, that He has paid for our sin, one offering for all time for sin, and has saved us. It's not just that. It has residual effects. This is not like you inherited something that's just a big lump sum of money, right? You get an inheritance, maybe somebody dies, and you're like, we're set. We're justified in life. We've got all this money. This is like you inherited a booming business. You're completely set, and there is monthly and weekly residual truths of salvation. Christian, you are not just justified. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. You are sanctified in salvation. It is not just the knowledge of what Christ has once done and where you stand legally, as many say, but salvation is also sanctification. It is salvation from the power of sin. You don't just live knowing one day you won't carry God's wrath, but you are no longer enslaved to sin. Salvation means sin no longer has dominion over you. Remember the phrase that we've referenced many times in Ephesians. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins like the rest of the world carried about in the course of the world, seeking out the passions of your flesh like the sons of wrath. Notice all of that language is past tense. Christian, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but you are not anymore. It says, but God in great mercy has loved us that even when we were dead in our sins, not any longer, but even when we were, what has he done? He's made us alive together in Christ. Christian, you are not just saved from the penalty of hell, but you are saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has to reign in your mortal bodies. Our good friends who are long dead, now with Christ in glorification, well, awaiting, kind of, well, there's some theological stuff there, but anyway, let's move on. Wrote, describing sanctification also. So if you with will looketh with me at the Westminster Confession, sanctification, 
How did they labor to describe it for us? What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time now through the powerful operation of the Spirit applying the death and the resurrection of Christ unto them. Renewed in the whole man after the image of God and having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts and those graces stirred up, increased and strengthened as they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. Is a great brief sentence in describing the truth of sanctification. What does it mean? It is God's work in you. This is not your work. This is God's work in you. That because he has saved you, because from the beginning of time he has chosen that you would be holy, now in this time, through the powerful work of the Spirit, the Spirit of God applies Christ's work. Jesus died and rose from the dead to proclaim you just. And now the Spirit of God does that. He says, this is the payment that was made, and this is the residual payment that remains coming because of what was done. And the Spirit applies it. The Spirit puts it in your life. Having the seeds of repentance into life, that action, that seeds or the growth that causes you to say, I will turn from sin and live for Christ that you did once and your life continually does. It is in your heart and through those graces stirred up and increased and strengthened more and more. You die unto sin and rise to new life. Christian, maybe you've experienced this. Many Christians experience this in that they're growing. And, and I know many Christians have come to our church and, and after a few months, a few years with us, they'll say, I don't know if I was even saved before. Right? I've never run after my Bible this way. I think that's the experience of a lot of faithful churches, that people show up and they're pursuing the Word of God and they're seeing this, and then their hearts start going, I don't even know if I've ever been saved. Why? Well, one, it could be because they never were saved. That, that's, just, that's just facts. It could be people that have been in churches that come and they were never saved. But it is also because in sanctification, as we lean in on God, the Spirit of God who applies the Word transforms our heart, and we are regularly changed from the death of sin to the newness of life. And sometimes you're changed in such dramatic ways that you think, everything is new right now. Maybe this was salvation. Maybe I just got saved. On this side of eternity, we often don't know. Was that where justification was applied? We don't know, but we can take hope in that the Christian life is a pursuit of faith and repentance that results in sanctification because Christ has already made the payment. So you can be comforted. You don't have to figure out, did I just get saved? Or am I going to get saved next year when some other systematic theology or some Bible verse or a study of Romans makes me go, wait, you're saying God is all-powerful? I knew God was all-powerful, but I powerfully understand that God is all-powerful now. Did I just get saved? Maybe. I don't know. But you just grew. You just got sanctified, right? Because those things are not just my mind exploded and now I get to talk to people. Those are moments that change your life. Those are moments where you go, I'm not living for that anymore. 
I'm running for that. It feels like salvation because it is. It is salvation in sanctification. It is to be brought from death to life. It is not to be brought into the family of Christ, but it is the continual work of Christ in you by the power of the Spirit because what Christ has done, changing you from one degree of glory to another, putting sin to death and giving newness of life. This is what Romans 6, 5 through 14 says. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now I want you to notice what Paul's saying here. He says the resurrection proclaims that Christ has risen from the dead. He will never die again. He is living as a man forever at the right hand of God the Father. And he will never die again because he has defeated death. He says in the same way then, Sin has been defeated in you. You will never be owned by it again. It will never reclaim its reign over you. You are no longer enslaved to it. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as God's instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law but you are under grace. Sin no longer owns you. It no longer has dominion. It no longer are you under its domain. Sin is not your master, right? Sin does not own you. Sometimes we don't believe that. In the same way that sometimes an addict doesn't believe that they can stop being an addict. Why? They, they believe this is all I've ever known. This is all I've ever done. This is the only thing I have. And they turn back to what they know. They, they don't renew their minds. In an earthly way, we have this sense of understanding with things like drugs. Drugs can form your mind in such a way that you feel like you need this. You, you long for this. You have to live off this. And when you stop, what happens? Because that's what your body knows and you've tempered it to it. You have withdrawals. And your body compels you. you. You need this. You want this. I've got to go back to this. It's the only way I will get freedom. And you believe that. And everybody else outside is watching going, no, no. Remember why you were fleeing it? Not because it was giving you freedom. Because it was taking everything from you. It was destroying you. But the withdrawals lie. And they tell you this is the only way to be satisfied. The only thing you can do is return. is your only hope. And some return to sin the same way, like it owns them. 
that doesn't have them, you have been set free. Christ is your master. And drug addicts are not the only ones with problems. Again, we want to look at the world and we want to say, yeah, that's true. Drug addicts are like that, right? Yeah, that's a big problem. Here's the problem, Christian. You have a relationship with the sin similar. And it might not be as out in the open. And it might not be as destructive to your life in the view of everyone else who's dealing with the same level of sin, probably. But you do the very same things. You believe the lies. You think, because the outside of my body has not died, this is what is going to bring me hope. It's not just drug addicts. Only anxiety and wallowing over my problems out of my control will bring me comfort. The only way I can solve my anxieties and my discomfort is to ask everyone about those anxieties, to go to Google about all those anxieties, to try to figure out all the answers of the unanswerable questions, and to try to work through everything so that I have everything lined up and all the trustworthy doctors and teachers and pastors and preachers and everybody I can find to answer the questions that are really outside of my control anyway. Maybe some of you have been tempted like me recently and everything going on in Afghanistan to anxiety and wallowing in problems that you don't have the power to solve. And you're going to figure out everything you can so that when whoever's president calls you next time, you can tell them this is the way you should handle it. All the presidents stopped returning my phone calls a long time ago. I don't, I'm like, hey, what's up, Donald? Not doing it anymore so we don't talk? Like, hey, Brock, didn't get an invitation to your birthday party. Not asking my advice. No, right? No public authority anywhere is calling me to go, what do you think would be the good exit strategy for this? No, they don't care what I think. And what that communicates to me is not that I am unimportant. It communicates God is not giving me that responsibility. And praise God, it is on his shoulders and not mine. Praise God that I can rest comforted pursuing what I know he has called me to and give what is out of my control to say, I trust you, Father. This looks like chaos to me, but I am praying for these people. I'm looking to do anything I can within my responsibility, but I can't live in this. I can't be wrought with anxiety. I must run to the Father. Rather than returning to anxiety and wallowing, be faithful with what he has given you as your responsibility, trusting God with everything that he carries. Or maybe you believe only anger and harsh words and profanity will bring about justice. Only if my wrath comes, only if I can speak harshly, if I can yell loud, if I can be strong, if I can intimidate and I can speak profanely, then I will feel satisfied. It is a lie. He says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You trust in him. You rest in him. You do not give yourself to harsh words or profane words or anger, rather to humility and mercy, speaking in love. You do not weigh over others, demanding they do this or that, that they might be forgiven. You recognize that he has forgiven you in all things, and you forgive others as he has forgiven you. Praise the Lord! Amen. Praise the Lord! Maybe also in drunkenness. You say, only drunkenness will ease my pain. Only drunkenness, only addiction is going to finally numb all of these pains. Rather than trusting God and loving others with a sober mind and a clear mind to say, how can I think to love others 
rather than turning to something to satisfy yourself that really destroys you. Living for him in the Bible communicates a sober mind in love for others. Maybe it's immorality. Only immorality can satisfy my passions rather than a pursuit of self-control and trusting God that his designs for purity are what truly will satisfy. Maybe it's lies. Maybe only lies will save this relationship. I can't tell them the truth. The only way to fix this problem is to lie to them. I'm so sorry. The traffic was horrible. I didn't mean to be late to your birthday. Really, you just got up late. Why? Why are you resorting to lies? Maybe you tell your kids, don't answer that phone call. It's a bill collector. And then they answer and you say, tell them I'm not home. Why? Because you're putting your hope in lies. That will solve your problems. No, repent rather than speaking lies to fix your problems. Trust him that speaking the truth in love, even if it means confessing your sin or addressing the sin of another will be an act of sanctification. All of these are not about you trying to earn your way to God. It is about you repenting of your addict ways and saying, sin no longer owns me. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I know that sin tells me anger and wrath and slander, anxiety and drunkenness and immorality and lies will solve my problems, but I know I am not owned by them anymore. You must have a depth of understanding And don't be discouraged. Hear the truth of salvation and pursue it in repentance and faith. Because sanctification is a hopeful part of salvation. It is progressive. And it is freeing. Because you have been saved in Christ. If your hope is in Christ, you are justified. Now, the results of that is you are being sanctified. You can lean into that. Lean into it. Rest in it. Because he has promised he will accomplish it. It's what Hebrews 10, 14 through 25 declares. He says, for by a single offering, he has made perfect or perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has made perfect. He is justified. You are completely righteous before God. You will not go to hell if your hope is in Christ. You are resting in him. You have eternity before you. And those who that is true for, what has he done? Those who have been perfected for all time are being sanctified in this time. And the Holy Spirit also, verse 15, bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Do you hear what he's saying? The Spirit of God has already declared he was going to do this in the Old Testament. He says, I will cleanse them. I will give them hearts that long to obey. I will give them hearts that wrestle in obedience, not in dominion and power of sin. And he says, as they're doing that, as we are pursuing him in righteousness, is it because he remembers our sin and he's trying to balance us out? He says, no, he will remember their sin no more. It's been paid for in Christ. He says, where there is, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where Christ has forgiven, you no longer make any offering of sin. That's why as a church, we talk about repentance a lot. We don't talk about penance. Those are two different terms. Repentance is to turn from sin and run towards Christ. 
penance is to do something to make yourself right before God. Many churches teach, or uh, false churches teach, that there must be some kind of penance. You've done this wrong, therefore you must make it right by saying this prayer this many times, or doing this good deed, or giving this much money. You've got to balance out. God's giving you an opportunity to, to make accounts figured rightly. But Christian, you don't live in penance. You live in repentance. You live turning from sin and running towards Christ because your account balance has already been completed in Christ. So you live in hope. And he says, 18, where the forgiveness of these is no longer an offering for sin. There's no penance you can do. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, the curtain that is our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us draw near. Oh, sorry, the high priest of God, verse 22. Let me me go back there. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, therefore, verse 19, because we have confidence, because Christ is our high priest, because his blood has covered us, what should we do? Let us draw near to God with a true heart, full assurance, confidence in Christ. Let us draw near to him. Let us go to him. Let us know that our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Though our conscience might confuse us, we have been washed with pure water in Christ. He says, let us hold fast. Let us grip firmly onto the truth, the hope of our salvation, because why? He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. As I've reminded you every week, this armor of God, as you are declared to hold, is not written in the singular. It's written in the plural. When you take up the belt of truth, we take it up together. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, we do it together. When we, hold, when we uh, shod our feet with the gospel of peace, we do so together. When we take up the shield of faith, we do so together. And when we put on the helmet of salvation, we together pursue to know and to understand and rest in the justification of our sins, in the sanctification of our sin, because we await what verse 25 says. Not to neglect meeting together is the habit of some, but it's not just meeting together. What is it? Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Satan will lie and scheme. Satan in the world tells you there's some way to get rid of that little problem. You don't need Jesus. You can just get rid of this problem, right? You can just speak it out of existence. You just do these five, 12 easy steps. You might solve a symptom, but you are not solving the problem. Satan lies telling you there's another way. He lies telling you you can't change. You have no hope for holiness. How could you be holy? Don't you know your sinful past? Don't you know who you are? Who do you think you are? But you have justification. As Peter says, he says, no longer are you under the sin of your forefathers, but you have been redeemed in Christ. You are his. He is now your father. 
And we live and pursue all of that together, ignoring the lies of Satan, putting those to death, no longer living for our pleasure, our power, or our possession. Because what he says, stirring up one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Glorification in one sense, salvation is now seen dimly, right? We know we're justified. We see sanctification in our life. But glorification is the day that we are waiting for. It is the day that is drawing near. Christ will return. And not only the penalty of sin is removed, not only the power of sin and its domain in your life is removed, but the presence of sin will be removed. That is the day that's drawing near. That is the day we encourage one another toward. And as Satan lies to us, he says, live for the current, not for the future. Live for your current power. Live for your current possession. Live for your current pleasure. You must get all you can out of this life. You must be satisfied in all things. Find the next thing. Give your family everything. Do everything you can to rejoice in this life is a lie. Because we wait for the day that's drawing near. Romans 6, it says, But now that you have been freed from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The current fruit that you're getting is sanctification. It is progressive holiness. It is a greater and greater understanding of God, a greater and greater freedom from your old master's sin, a greater and greater knowledge of his grace, a greater and greater ability to love others and to love God. But that is only the fruit. It's not the root. It's not what's coming forever. That's a seasonal thing. What's coming forever is eternal life. The gift of God is not just knowledge that you are saved and a life that progressively gets better. Your goal is not just, I just want to be a little better every day. That's the goal of my life. The goal of your life is eternity with Christ. The goal of your life is what he has already promised, glorification. Sanctification has an end. It is glorification. You will forever be his. And Paul warns us, in Philippians, he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. There are those who will convince you, you've got to live for now. You've got to get satisfied now. You've got to get your vengeance out now. You've got to make yourself known now. You've got to get your possessions now. You've got to get your power now because you're going to die. And it's really like someone who walks into a house full of beautiful things. They'll say that house belonged to their great-grandfather. And they're bitter and angry with him. And they think, all of these things are before me and none of them are mine. I'm just going to leave. I just walk out of this house and then what? 
and they start destroying everything in that house. They're ripping all the paintings and breaking all the dishes and flipping all the tables. And they feel like Jesus, who's just pouring out the wrath of God and the self-righteous, they feel good about themselves and everything's broken. And they walk out of the house and the grandfather says, how was the house? It's all yours. And you just destroyed it. You're just bitter with him that this stuff wasn't yours. And you thought, how could he just put all this before me and keep it from me? You felt so justified in your sin and so destroyed when you walked out of the house and he said, don't forget, this is all yours. Christian, don't be that Christian. Don't be the one who is saved by fire. Don't be the one who gets there on the day of eternity who lived your whole life flipping tables over the Father who has loved you and saved you and sent mercy. Wait for your glorification. Know that, yes, all the possessions of earth will be ours. Everything on earth will be his. But we will not have sin. We will not be those who function in bitterness and sin. You must think of the end goal. Are you in conflict this morning with others? If they are believers, you must consider they will forever be mine in Christ. Am I going to dwell in sin? Are you living for possessions that are going to perish and fade? You must consider these will be forever ours in Christ. Now is nothing compared to eternity. Your salvation is not here in the perishing possessions not here in the defiled power of earth, not here in the fading pleasure of earth, but in the imperishable blessings of heaven in the undefiled purpose of God's glory for all time and in the unfading pleasure of sinless joy in God. You need a full scope of your salvation because Satan is trying to convince you this is all that matters. Give in to your old masters, give in to sin. But John tells us something different. God in grace, he says, beloved, loved, my loved people, John, 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And what does John say? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christian, you must place your hope there. You must have a depth of understanding of your salvation. You can't just know that you only escaped from hell. You must know that you are justified and you are because of that being sanctified and you are awaiting with hope to be glorified, to see him like he is because you will forever be his. Do all you can to stand firm in the evil day. Put on the helmet of salvation Rest yourself fully. Not just this morning for 55 minutes together, but for the rest of your life in God's grace, pursuing to understand all that he has blessed us with, that we might know we are justified, that we might live in hope and sanctified, because we will one day in him be glorified.